This morning we're going to be continuing our sermon series on the Good News Kingdom, and so we will be in Matthew 7. You can turn there now in your Bibles. We've been in the uh, Sermon on the Mount for quite a while now, and we are coming to the end of this specific section of Matthew. And last week, Scott had shared with us about judgment and about our masks of self-righteousness that we regularly wear. We heard that we all are regularly pronouncing judgment on other people, which, as we heard from the Scriptures, betrays that we ourselves are often unrepentant, that we ourselves do not truly yet believe what it means to be forgiven by Jesus. Again, that's not saying judgment exempts us from having to bring correction or even rebuke or critique to people. We definitely need to do that. But there's a difference between doing that out of love, knowing who you are in light of Jesus and his forgiveness versus actually doing it in judgment, lording it over people. So it's interesting that Jesus is addressing judgment, which interestingly enough, who are the people in our culture who are often known as the most judgmental? It's the church. It's the religious. It's the people who pride themselves on their morality and their ethics. So Jesus addressed this 2,000 years ago, and we still need to be hearing this. So if you missed that sermon, I would very much encourage you to go back on our website and listen to that. And so today, Jesus is drawing this to a conclusion. We only have a couple weeks left on the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to see that the judge is not only one who judges the judges, but he is also a father. When we come to realize that the judge who is standing over us is also calling us to be his kids. That's what we're going to look at today. So I'm going to ask my friend Louie to come and read this passage for us. This will be Matthew 7, verses 7 through 14. All right. So I'm going to read out from uh, Matthew 7, uh, verses uh, 7 to 14 from the ESV version. So here we go. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or well, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others will do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the, and the prophets." Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Awesome. Thank you. In one sense, it seems like there's a lot to unpack there. Asking, knocking, seeking, do unto others what you want them to do to you, enter the narrow gate. In one sense, that would seem like this could be three different sermons. But I believe that if we maintain a grip on what Jesus has been telling us about the kingdom, we realize that the judge is also a father. We realize that he's a father who does what? Who calls us to ask lavishly. A father who calls us to love others. And a father who tells us there is only one way to him. So what we're going to see today is not a series of disconnected messages, but Jesus actually drawing us to see that if we really are on the narrow path, if we really are on the way to the narrow gate, that will be seen by what we think the Father is like, and it will be seen by our love for other people. So let's pray, and we're going to jump into this. 
Jesus, we thank you for just the fact that we can be your children, your fellow heirs today. Jesus, we thank you that you have brought us into your kingdom. We thank you for your word. And God, I ask that even right now that you would help us to not hear the voice of a mere man, but that you would help us to hear your spirit speaking to us. Jesus, I thank you for how even this week you have met me in this scripture, that you have encouraged me in my own soul as I have been weary or discouraged or anxious at different times, that you have called me personally back to see what kind of a father you are. I pray the same for all of our redemption family today. So Spirit, we ask that you would help us hear Jesus in this passage today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said a minute ago, if we keep a grip on what Jesus has been showing us throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount, we will see not three disconnected messages, but one actually unified message in this. Jesus is drawing all of this to a conclusion, all of his teaching to a conclusion now, and he's saying, so do you still want to be with me? Do you still want to keep following me? Are you actually on the narrow path? Or are you actually going down the wide path? As I already said, what we'll see is that you will know if you're on the narrow path by what you think God is like. Think about that. It's not how much good you're doing. What do you really think God is like? And how do you know what you think God is like? Do you love other people? So these gates that Jesus is talking about aren't just some third part of the passage, but I believe the gates are the driving force of this whole passage. So let's talk first about this idea of these narrow gates. Narrow gates and a narrow path, an invitation to journey with Jesus. Let's go back to those verses, verses 13 and 14. Listen as I read them again. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. If you think about it, as listeners of this passage, what we realize is that throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we aren't just being given an account of the life of Jesus. We are being invited, 2,000 years later, to be participants in the life of Jesus. Think about that. You're not just hearing stories about the life of Jesus. You're not just hearing exhortations from Jesus. You, as a hearer of the scriptures, are being invited to journey yourself with Jesus. We ourselves are being called to journey with God. And so Jesus is saying to us, which way do you want to go? Do you want to keep following me? After all I've said, are you still in? And to make that point, he talks about gates and roadways. And gates and roadways in the ancient Near Eastern culture were really, really important. We don't really understand the concept of gates. Um, when's the last time you had to walk through a gate? I mean, maybe like into a little garden or maybe you have a, a fence with a gate. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, gates were really, really important. And again, maybe if you've seen... Um, fantasy movies, or maybe Jurassic Park, you understand the importance of gates. Gates allow certain things in, and they keep certain things out. Or if you think about gates like exits on I-64, missing your gate is a really bad thing. Gates 
whether physical or even metaphorical, gates are pathways into communities. Gates represent protection, certainty, and anyone who wants to enter any kind of city or community has to go through a gate. So what does Jesus say? That entrance into his kingdom, his community, happens in one gate. Not many gates. There is one gate. The gate is called narrow because it's not the most popular. It's not the most embellished, but Jesus says it's the gate that leads to life. So guys, do you see that Jesus here is not offering you good advice? He's not offering you a peaceful life. He's literally laying out the realities of eternity. So that's what we have to realize, that the reality of these gates has huge implications for your life. It has implications related to eternity, and it has implications related to right now, your everyday life right now. So let's talk for just a second about the implication of these gates. Look what Jesus says. He says, enter the narrow gate which leads to life. Because where does the wide gate lead? I want you all to do something. I want you to literally look down at your Bible and read, where does the wide gate lead? Because what I'm about to say, you might not like, and if you disagree with it, you're actually disagreeing with God's word, not me, a mere man. The wide gate leads to destruction. The wide gate leads to destruction. And, look again, how many people are on that path? Many. Many people are on that path. What is this way that leads to destruction? It is any life that is void of Jesus at the center. Any life that does not have Jesus at the center is a life that is on the wide path. This destruction, is this talking about just right now? Or is it talking about eternity? Is this destruction saying, if you don't follow Jesus, you'll have a hard life right now? Absolutely not, because who do the scriptures often say prosper in this world? Those who do not follow God are often the ones who prosper. If you want to read Psalm 73, the writer is lamenting the fact that it is the wicked who prosper in this world. So this can't be saying, oh, if you don't follow God, you'll have a hard time in this life. No, 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 no. This destruction being referenced is about eternal destruction. So what is this destruction Jesus is referring to? I think that we would be unfaithful to Scripture if we avoided that this is actually talking about hell. This is actually talking about the reality of eternal separation and punishment for those who don't trust Jesus. Friends, the wide path is the path to hell. And I know it's not popular to talk about hell. People get all weird about it. But you know who doesn't get weird talking about hell? Jesus. I think people in our culture, especially Christians, struggle with this idea of eternal separation and punishment. Because we imagine hell is this place where people are being unjustly punished and they're pleading, oh, please don't send me there. But no, that is an inaccurate picture of hell. Hell is for those who say to God, 
I refuse your gate. I refuse to follow you. I will not say your will be done. I will instead say my will be done in this life. And so do you know what God gives those people? He gives them what they want. God says, not my will, your will be done. You will be separated from me and from my people for all of eternity. Friends, the wide gate is the gate that leads to destruction in a place called hell where people who do not believe in Jesus will spend eternity. So, there's some pretty big implications as it relates to eternity, as it relates to which path are you on. But, not only does it have eternal implications, the choice of gate and path actually relates to right now as well, not just eternity. It affects us right now because you now need to ask yourself, this in, this in one sense is intended to give us a gut check. Which path am I on? Am I really on the narrow way? That is a healthy thing to ask yourself. Am I really following Jesus? Or am I just doing this because I think it's popular? Because people around me are doing it. Will I actually live in the way of Jesus? Or will I live kind of however I want? In your relationships, in your friendships, in your sexuality, in your checkbook. Are you living on the narrow path of Jesus? Not just when it's convenient. Not just when it's easy. Including when it costs you. Including when it's painful. Friends, the narrow road is certainly about eternity, but it is also about right now. Listen to our friend Sinclair Ferguson, what he has to say. Ultimately, what is Jesus saying here? He says it is simple. There are two ways to live. The way of the world or the way of the Lord. Here, Jesus calls us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to make up our minds. Certain issues must be settled. There can be no room for negotiation or compromise. So friends, have you made up your mind? Or are you still wrestling and testing out the options for which path you will choose? Where in your own life right now do you see that you are being influenced by the wide gates, by the alternative of the easy path? Ask yourself, where in my own heart am I thinking, this way is just so much easier? Notice it says the path that leads to life is narrow. Meaning it's not always going to be the most desirable. Notice what does Jesus say? Who are the people who enter it? How many people enter the narrow gate? Again, I want you to look in the Bible. How many people enter it? It says few. Few people enter the narrow gate. I want you to think about this. This means that not only do many people go down the narrow gate, but this also bears the fact that there are many who think they are following Jesus, but they actually are not. There are many who think they want to follow Jesus because it makes me feel good, or I want to follow Jesus because it brings a lot of good, good benefits, like his people and a community and 
That's different than following Jesus. Those are all amazing things that come with following and being part of the family of God. But there are many people who think, oh yeah, I'm following Jesus. And all they're doing is saying that. They have no idea what it actually means to follow Jesus. So Jesus is saying, there are many who think they are following me, but they actually are not. Is that giving you a gut check? It's given me a gut check this week because I've looked over this passage. If you want a life of ease with no pain or sacrifice, then the path of Christianity is not for you because that's not the narrow path that Jesus calls us to walk. Jesus is calling us to see the difference between real discipleship and nominal discipleship, meaning those who authentically follow Jesus are following the path of real discipleship. That's the narrow path. But there are many, especially in our southern culture, who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, check my religion. Oh yeah, I'm Christian. What does it look like for you to follow Jesus? They have no idea. It's cultural. That's nominal discipleship. That's name-only discipleship. That's actually, if you remember back from our Ten Commandments series, that's actually breaking the third commandment, which says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember that? We learned that that doesn't mean don't cuss, which, again, it's good not to cuss. It's, it's good not to cuss. But that commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain, is not saying don't cuss. That's saying don't claim the name of the Lord unless you actually are following him. Do not take it on yourself that you bear the name of Jesus if you actually really don't. So Jesus is calling us to see real discipleship versus nominal discipleship. Lastly, these gates reveal the exclusivity of Jesus. The exclusivity of Jesus. There are not many ways to God. Again, I'm not telling you this. This is what the text of Scripture is saying. There are not many ways to God. Jesus is here claiming that there is only one gate, one way into the kingdom. Being a good person doesn't cut it. You have to enter the kingdom through the one gate, which is through Jesus, which, as we will soon see in Matthew, means entering and participating in his death and resurrection as you put your faith in him. Entering through this gate, through the gate of Jesus, means you no longer rely on your own attempts at good works to satisfy God. But no, you have come in now through the righteousness of Jesus. Because Jesus is the only way to the Father. So we've looked at these gates. We've seen what Jesus means by them. But what about this question? How do you know? How do you know if you really are on the narrow path? How do you really know if you are going towards the narrow gate? Well, I think this passage itself answers the question. You will know if you are on the narrow path by what you think God is like. And you will know if you are on the narrow path by how you love. There's this diagram here. So how do we know what God is like? What kind of father do you think he is? How do you know if you really know what the Father is like? You're going to see that by if you love people. So let's look at first the journey with God. Asking, knocking, seeking. Jesus tells us in this passage, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
this passage is actually asking us, not how do you pray, it's what do you think God is like? Is he a God who answers when you ask? Is he a God whom when you seek, you will find him? Often we think that this passage is just talking about our prayer life, as if our prayer life is just simply the time, you know, when we, you know, pray before a meal, which is really important, or when we read our Bibles and we pray, which is also really important. But do you think that's what Jesus is talking about when you pray? No, not just that. This is about our everyday lives. When we find ourselves in situations that we can't explain, when fear grips us, when anger surges within us, when we are faced with perplexities and uncertainties, it is here that we realize he's calling us into a journey with him. He's calling us into saying, ask me, seek me, knock. The call to ask, seek, and knock is a call to actually journey with God in life. It's not just saying, make sure you sit down and pray because, you know, it's like asking and seeking and knocking. That is an invitation to journey with God in life. In our everyday life, this is an invitation to walk with Jesus. The usage of ask, seek, and knock isn't like three little cute metaphors. This is talking about persistence. This implies resilience. This implies that you are bold enough to ask God for really big things. Because that's showing what kind of father you actually think he's like. It implies that we have a father who can be relied upon. Because Jesus gives this human analogy. Which of you, if you have a child, will give him a stone instead of bread? Which of you, if he asks for an egg, would give him a snake instead? I mean, Jesus is actually showing that even earthly parents know what it is to love. So would not our gracious, extravagant scandalously loving Heavenly Father also give us things if we ask Him? But the question is, do we approach God in that way? Or do we not really believe He is that kind? That He is that lavish? So again, this is in one sense a call to prayer. It is a call to ask. But it's also showing us what do you really think God is like? Because if you really believe he is that extravagant and good and gracious of a father, you will ask him. We will know if we are on the narrow path with Jesus by how we approach the father. Do we know of his love or are we still living in fear like orphans who don't know our true parents? Friends, Jesus is inviting us into this journey, into knowing and being known by the one true God, a God who doesn't just care about the spiritual stuff like our sin and our struggles in eternity, but this God here that he's talking about, the God who doesn't give a snake instead of food, no, this is a God who legitimately cares about our bumps and bruises. This is a God who cares about our sick dogs and cats. We often think, oh, God just cares about the big stuff. I won't trouble him with these you know, lesser woes that I have, no. We have a God who wants to show up 
when we are fearful, when we are angry, when we are perplexed, we have a God who's not too busy. Our God is not too busy for us, for our needs. We often think that we can only ask God for the right things. Have you ever heard of that? People have told me that before. Well, you know, God only wants us to ask about, like, spiritual things. You know, if, God, I really, I really need some help with this thing. Or, God, I really would like this thing. I don't know if I should pursue this thing. Whatever it would be. Is that, like, is that off limits? Like, we shouldn't ask God about those types of things? No. In this passage... We are being called to be like a child who asks for what we need. On this concept of, oh, we can only ask for the right things, listen to what another friend of Redemption's says. This is from N.T. Wright. He says, the right things doesn't simply mean fine moral qualities, though if you dare to pray for holiness, humility, or other dangerous things, God may just give them to you, which he will if you ask him for that. This means the things we need day to day, which God is just as concerned about as we are. If he is a father, let's treat him as a father, not as a bureaucrat or a dictator who wouldn't want to be bothered with our trivial and irrelevant concerns. It is up to him to decide if he's too busy for us. The fact that there may be a war going on in one country, a famine somewhere else, earthquakes, tragic accidents, murder and pillage all over the place, and that he is grieving all of this. This might be a problem for a high-ranking authority at the United Nations, but it is no problem whatever for our loving Father. When he says he's still got time, space, and love to spare for us, we should take him at his word. Do you take God at his word? When he says he's got time for you in your own world, do you take him at his word? What we ask for reveals our theology. It reveals what we really think God is like. Is he just my divine butler in the sky? Or is he a father who is attentive to my needs and my requests? In this passage, we are invited to be bold, and audacious in our journey with God. We are invited into deep wrestle and struggle with God when we don't know why he's doing what he's doing. God, will you be faithful here? God, will you show up here? I don't know what you're doing. Help me see this. Friends, that is asking. That is seeking. That is being bold. That is knocking. So are you bold enough? to ask God for things? Are you bold enough to say, God, I know you say you're faithful, but I have no idea how you're showing up here? Or is that like, oh, that's off limits. That's like anger. God wants your anger. Don't you think he's big enough to handle our anger or even our accusation? Absolutely he is. Because when you enter into that kind of journey with God, you're actually going to see him meet you. You're going to see him meet you, even if he says no. So we know if we're on the narrow gate by how we approach God, by what we think God is like. So that shows us that the narrow gate, often maybe you've heard this passage used in like, a, uh, like an evangelism setting, like an invitation to people to walk on the narrow, you know, come on the narrow path. This is an invitation to make a decision to follow Jesus. And that is important, to make a decision to follow Jesus. 
But this isn't just about a one-time decision. No, the narrow gate and the narrow path represent a continued trust to journey with Jesus on the path. Over years and years, through stumblings, through failings, through, through seasons of belief, through seasons of unbelief, continuing to realize again and again, Jesus, you're the one going ahead of me on this path. Narrow gate people are those who can say, I will keep following you, Jesus, because I know what you're like. Which means I can ask you for crazy and outrageous things. Those who enter the narrow gate aren't the religious, legalistic law abiders. No, the ones who enter the narrow gate are the ones who are convinced of the outrageous love of God, and so they persistently ask, seek, and knock. So what are narrow gate people like? They're the ones who are on the narrow path, which means they ask the Father for everything they need. But people on the narrow way don't just ask God for what they need, but they demonstrate their actual love for God through how? Through fulfilling the law and the prophets. Through loving others as they themselves want to be loved. So narrow gate people love other people like God has loved them. Look at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus here not only is summing up all of his teaching, but he hits at the core of what the entire Old Testament law is about. This verse is to be understood as a call to be radically oriented towards the well-being of your neighbor which Jesus has already made clear, your neighbor is your enemy. Your neighbor is the one you don't like. Your neighbor is the one that you disagree with, the one who annoys you, the people who are just weird. Jesus isn't allowing for any exceptions. Think about that. This means the people who vote differently than you. They're your neighbor. Called to love them. The people who raise their kids and families differently than you. The people who eat or drink weird stuff that you're like, what in the world is that? The people who come from different backgrounds than you. The people who are awkward. We're to love those people as we ourselves are to be loved. And this isn't some twisted logic like, oh, okay, well, I want to be loved like this, so I'll do this to these people. No. This is not saying that at all. What this passage actually does is it leaves this scripture open to be, to be understood as you're going to be called to love people in a lot of different settings, a lot of different ways. What does it look like in each of those situations and settings to love people? It doesn't restrict it. This passage actually opens up this command to not just love in one type of way, but realizing that the people of God will be in different seasons, different times in history, different environments, and in each of those situations, figure out what it means to love people in this. Figure out what it means. Right now, in 2021, in November, in Hampton Roads, to love others as you want to be loved. One author writes, this command isn't limited to a specific setting. It's intended to be fleshed out with new situations, fresh challenges. This verse is designed for each generation of Christians to say, what does it look like to love people right now in this space and time? So situationally, 
How do you specifically love people? Missionally for us as a church, where are we at? What does it mean to love people here in our church family, but then also in our cities where we live? What does it mean? Let's get specific here. What does it mean to love those whom you disagree with on vaccines, on masks, on politics, on schooling choices, on family issues? You fill in the hot topic for you. Because I know you all got them. As we go to close, we'll just ask you, maybe you can journal, journal about this, write this down. What specific situation right now are you being called by Jesus to journey with him on along the narrow path? What is one specific way the Spirit is calling you to love as you want to be loved? Those who are on the narrow path, those who will enter the narrow gate are those who ask because they know the extravagance of the Father and they are those who will love others. So what I'd love for us to do is, as we go to close, to even just take a moment, maybe we'll take a minute or two, to actually just sit in silence and reflect on what Jesus is calling each of us specifically to do. Is he calling you to come back and know that type of extravagant love? Maybe you've been distant. Maybe you've been fearful. Maybe you haven't really believed fully that you could ask the Father for crazy, extravagant things. Maybe you know you are being called to love others in certain ways. Maybe even in your life right now, you're questioning if God is actually faithful. And lastly, before we take a moment for quiet, I would just ask you, what is stopping you from asking him? Is it hurt? Is it your past? Are you too busy? Would you say you've tried and it's not working? Are you puzzled at maybe a specific area where God has said no so far? See all of this as an invitation to continue to journey with Jesus along this path. The Sermon on the Mount in this section specifically could be summarized as saying, God will never let you down. But where do you need to believe that more? Let's take a minute and just be quiet in our own hearts before we go to close and go to communion.